Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles. We've been walking through the book of Ephesians, and we're uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to the end of the chapter, but don't worry. Like most Sundays, I won't get done. So whatever you see in your notes, cut it in half, and chances are that might be halfway that I get. So we'll, we'll just see. I, I might make it a quarter of the way. You never know. This passage is, is so rich because what, what it's doing is it's showing us our place, your place in the body of Christ. Let's, let's look at it here. We're going to pick it up in verse 15 where the Apostle Paul, who's writing to the church at Ephesus, and, and the Spirit of God, who's writing to each one of us, he says this. He gives a contrast. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, what I want to to encourage you to do today is to make that personal, because this is God's message to you and to me. He's saying you're a part of the body that is indispensable. In essence, he's saying you were made to make a difference. I made you. I designed you. I gave you the life that I have given you, the relationships, the skills, the abilities, the heart, the passion, the whole package of all that you are, I made for something amazing. Are you willing to pursue his plan? Are you willing and desiring to really make a difference with your life. You're needed. And God's call upon our life is designed for us to fit together perfectly with others so that the body of Christ builds itself up in love. And I love what it says here. It says, when each part is working properly. Well, the assumption there is that sometimes that's not happening. Sometimes I'm not doing my part as the body. And if I'm not doing my part as the body, others are suffering. There's pieces that are missing, and the same is true with you. But when we're doing our part and, it, and working properly, the body of Christ grows and builds itself up in love. So here's, here's the main point. The main point is you were made to make a difference. And so, in fact, just to make sure that it sinks in, just say that. I was made to make a difference. Now, do you believe it? Because you kind of just mumbled it a little bit. I mean, I know you just heard it, so let's try it one more time. I was made to make a difference. I was made to make a difference. Okay, that's not what I say. That's what God says. He's not saying that if you reach a certain point, you'll make a difference. If you attain to a certain level of spirituality, he's saying, I designed you for something huge and beautiful if you'll pursue me. And and here's the thing. It resonates in our heart because all of us want to make a difference. In fact, if you do a search on the web for make a difference, which I happened to do this, this past week, you get all kinds of psychology articles and business articles that talk about different things that are significant in ways that an individual person can make a difference. 
Now, what's interesting in at least the articles that I read through, almost all of them reflect to a large degree Jesus' great commandment where he says that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. that the expression of our love for God through loving others is what makes a difference. And even though these articles were approaching things from a, from a mindset that it oftentimes excluded God, they were still coming back to the truth that God imprinted on the universe that the way we make a difference is to love, to love him and to love others. In fact, here, let me, it's, it's amazing how biblical some of it sounded. Listen to this from businessmission.com. How can an ordinary person make a difference in the world? Number one, the number one thing they said, start believing in something bigger than yourself. That seems like, it's kind of a duh, but um, yeah, that's, start believing in something bigger than yourself. Now, obviously, it doesn't, it's not just a matter of believing in something, it's believing in the one who made us, who created us, who designed us, and who saved us. And then it goes on and says, one action leads to another. Inspire one person first. In other words, make small steps. Find a mission you care about. I thought that was a, that was a good, good point. It, again, follows what you would see in the scripture. Work on it after hours, meaning that you're supposed to put your heart into it. It's to be a calling, not just something that you do. Be the example you wish to see in the world. Sounds a lot like Jesus saying we are to love others as we would have them love us. We're to treat others as we would have them treat us. And if you do that, you'll begin to make a difference without even realizing it. Well, here in the scripture, the Apostle Paul takes the command even further and emphasizes the way to real freedom and the way to make a true difference in this world is to obey Jesus' commands. He says in Galatians, um, he puts it this way. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So with that in mind, that's how we're to build one another up in love. Now we need to find out, okay, what's God calling me to do? What is the unique facet he's placed upon you and me that we are designed to pursue and to accomplish. Well, let's go on in our passage here in Ephesians, and we're going we're gonna to read through it, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. Picking up at verse 17, he says this, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Now, the first thing you should, you should recognize there is we shouldn't expect people who do not know Jesus Christ to act differently than they do. We should not expect their behavior, their morality to be something that reflects Christian values because their hearts are hard. They've not experienced the grace of God in a personal way that leads to transformation. So we're not to judge them. We're to recognize that what they need is what we've been given, a relationship with Christ. But also, we're to look at ourselves and say, am I changed? 
Do I still look just like I did before Christ, or is there a transformation happening in my heart? And he goes on, he says, they have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. If we're to follow Jesus Christ, we must be different. The only way to make a difference is for us to be changed first. So is your life, is my life different than the world around us? Do they see a difference in my attitudes, in, in my care, in my love, in my approach? And here's how he challenges us. He says, he gives a contrast, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Part of what he's saying is when we come to Christ, our desires, our appetites aren't what should define us. If we don't know Christ, that's all we live for is our appetites. Seeking to find some kind of satisfaction that will fill the emptiness in our heart. But when we know Christ, he is the one who fills that emptiness and he fills it to overflowing. And so therefore he goes on and says, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for you are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity for the devil. He says, let, here's part of the change. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Now, I want to pick up on that with a, with a beautiful story. Um, many years ago, in, um, it was, this happened in the, in the Middle East. There were two brothers, who, um, both of which were, were not very good guys, and they lived in a, in a particular village, and they were selfish in every way. And one day, in their idea of pursuing their own desires, their own wants, they went out and they stole sheep from a shepherd. They had his flock out in the pasture lands, and they went out, and they, they stole the sheep. But they were caught, and they were brought before the council of the village, and they pronounced a judgment on them. And the judgment that they pronounced on the two brothers was that they were to be branded with two letters that um, would have been, at least in English, would have been an S and a T, which stood for sheep thief. So that anywhere they went, everyone would see that their identity was that of a thief. And everyone in the village would know that they were thieves. Well, this had a great impact on the brothers, and, and one of them was so ashamed that he fled and was never seen again. He never returned to his hometown. But the other brother, his heart was broken. And he began to confess his sin to the Lord. And, he, and there was a change that happened in him so that he began to serve the needs of the community so that whenever anyone was, was moving, whenever anyone needed extra help with their field, he was the first one to show up and the last one to leave. And year after year, he served over and over again. And finally, after many years, a stranger came to the 
to the village and was there and he had witnessed this man working and serving and taking care of others. And so he finally asked one of the residents of the village, he says, who is this guy? And what is, what is ST on his forehead mean? And the villagers said, you know, it happened so long ago, I don't, really, I don't remember. I don't remember what it was that, that ended up putting those on his forehead. I think, I think it means saint. That's how we should be changed. We should not be remembered by our sin, but by the transformation that God makes within us. He can change us in beautiful, amazing ways. You and I were made by God to make a difference. And the the place to begin with that is to understand that God has a purpose for you. Are you pursuing that purpose? He says when every piece fits together, when every piece is working properly, that means that you have a unique role and I have a unique role in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God. We're made for a purpose and um, we're to use a God-gifted passion for his glory. We, we sang about stirring a passion, and, and that's what we want to see God do, is build up a passion in us to make a difference for eternity, because we are gifted for an eternal purpose, a life that makes a difference. And, and here's the thing. I believe that oftentimes finding that purpose and pursuing that purpose begins with something that, that others have called, and I'm simply borrowing the term, a holy discontent. Built within you, there's something that drives you that says, this needs to change. It may be an injustice that you see in the world. It may be the needs of others. It may be the hunger of those who are um, downtrodden, who, have, who lack opportunity, who, who simply are suffering poverty, who are homeless, who are outcast, who are taken advantage of. But there's something burning within you that says there needs to be something different. I believe God has invested in each one of us a holy discontent, a longing that nothing in this world will fill, a longing to make a difference that lasts for eternity. And here's how I'm defining a holy discontent. It comes from a deep burden and belief that something must be done to right a wrong with the world or to do all one can to ensure that the gospel is brought to hurting and broken people. Do you have a holy discontent? You see, sometimes the restlessness of our souls is a gift from God to move us forward into his purposes. Now, we need to assess that because this is not talking about just being discontented. It's not talking about being discontented with God. It's talking about being discontented with the way things are in the world around us, where what God designed and created and is restoring is not what we're seeing. And so we need to assess the source of our discontentment. If the frustration that you have about something, if it grows when you spend time with the Lord, chances are that's a holy discontent if it gets stronger. But if you take your holy, your discontent to the Lord and he begins to convict you and say, you're just being selfish, it's probably not a holy discontent. It's probably just yourself, your flesh or my flesh. 
If the frustration reduces when we spend time with him, it's probably just a desire from ourselves. Philippians puts it this way. It talks about our contentedness. This is how we are to be about our relationship with God and our circumstances, but also there's a hint here of how we're to pursue um, a holy discontent. He says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul says, I have a contentedness in my relationship with God. I don't have to have everything going my way. In fact, he's writing this from prison. And he's saying, I'm content in prison. But then the next verse says this, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. What he's saying is the church at Philippi had a holy discontent, even though he was content in the circumstance because he knew that God was using the trials he was going through for something greater. He recognized the holy discontent in the church at Philippi because they were burdened for Paul. They wanted to make a difference in his life. And so they sent um, emissaries. They sent people to encourage him. They sent gifts to provide for him. They weren't willing to just allow him to go through that on his own. That's a holy discontent. We're to be contented with the circumstances that we are in and to allow those to make us more dependent upon God, but also to see the circumstances in the lives and the people around us and to make a difference. When a person has a holy discontent, they are full, yet hungry still. Their satisfaction with God is exceeded only by their desire for more of him and to be more a part of his work and his purpose. This is why last week I asked you, what is it that breaks your heart? What are the things in your heart that you see around you that, that burden you? And is it the same kind of thing that breaks God's heart? Now, just think about it. Think about the people through the scripture who had a holy discontent. Moses, his holy discontent was seeing his people, the Israelites, enslaved, beaten, and mistreated. Now, initially, he pursued his holy discontent in an unholy way because God had to correct his desires and to teach him to depend upon him rather than in his own resources. Nehemiah had a holy discontent that the people needed protection. And so he was driven to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. David had a holy discontent because um, he was tired of the people of God being bullied and intimidated by Goliath. He would hear the mocking come uh, against God and against the people of God, and he had to do something about it. Jesus had many holy discontents. His greatest discontent is you and me. He wasn't content to allow us to stay where we are, broken and separated from God by our sin. And so he was willing to humble himself and driven by that holy discontent to come to earth, to be born um, of a virgin, to be born as a helpless child, to live a perfect life, and to come and offer his life as a sacrifice for us. But there were other things that we see in Jesus, in his ministry. 
We see Jesus getting angry when he he recognized that the temple, the place that's supposed to represent the dwelling place of God, was being used for commerce instead of prayer. He had a holy discontent, and he cleared the temple. God is calling you to make a difference in this world. Are you pursuing it? And here's the thing, I want to encourage you to dream bigger than you might think is possible, because if your calling doesn't terrify you, it's probably not from God. If it's something you can do, it's probably not a holy discontent, because God wants us to be totally dependent upon Him. So ask the the Lord to show you what he wants to do in you and through you, to show you if you have a holy discontent that needs to be pursued. This passion for God, this um, holy discontent is often produced in the midst of crisis. God may take the pain you've experienced and use that as a catalyst to have you be his presence in the lives of others. And let me tell you what's most encouraging about that. You may have gone through unimaginable pain, abuse or grief or difficulty in broken relationships. You may have been shamed or mistreated. But when you pursue and say, Lord, how can you use that for good? When you, like Joseph, say they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and begin to pursue that, it becomes redemptive in your own heart and life. And you become an instrument in God's hand that can be used to build up others who are going through similar hardships. It doesn't take away the pain, it doesn't say that it was all right, but it does redeem it and give it meaning and purpose and value and even joy. God can take all that and use it for us. So here are some points that will help us refine a discontent within us to determine whether it's holy and whether it's God-given so that it becomes a passion that is used for his honor. And the first one would be this. A God-gifted passion will expand Jesus' kingdom. We're to use our spiritual gifts, and all of us have them, to expand, to make bigger Jesus' kingdom. The gifts should be used constantly in every area of our life. That doesn't, when I say that, I don't mean you're you're just supposed to use your gifts when you come together and worship at church. God has gifted you and he wants to use those gifts in every aspect of your life. The first place you should use your spiritual gifts is in your family. You should use what God has placed within you to build up your family spiritually, emotionally, relationally, Physically, you should strengthen them. The same is true at work. We should be the best workers in our company because we're working not for ourselves, not for our boss, but for the Lord to see him be honored. The character of what we do, the integrity with which we work should reflect him and not us. And when it does, He will use it to expand his kingdom. How would your work be different if you saw yourself as Jesus' presence in the workplace? How would your shopping trip be different 
if you saw yourself as Jesus' presence in the store? I would be convicted. For me, it happens to be around electronics. But um, other things, maybe, for, for you. Do others see Jesus in us? The passion of God is calling us to pursue. Oh, sorry. He's calling us to pursue should reflect in every area of our life. Secondly, not only will it expand his kingdom, it will bring honor to God. And here's the great thing. It's not necessarily that we accomplish huge feats. It's that every part of our life is driven by a desire to honor the Lord. That's why in Colossians it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This means the most ordinary thing in our life can bring glory to God when it's done by a desire to lift him up, to love him, and to love others. It can be the most simple thing on the planet, and yet it can glorify God. And with that, we need to make sure that we don't compartmentalize. Don't divide your life into, here's the things I do for God, here's the things I do for myself, here's the things I do for my company. That's making them in compartments. God is the compartment. He wants to fill all of it. And so he gives us these gifts, he gives us these passions, and they're designed to build up the body of Christ. And here's the thing. I am absolutely convinced that it is those things that are most often overlooked that are most valuable to God. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is remarking on a woman who's placing an offering in a box, the offering box. And he sees people go by and they make a big deal out of putting in a large offering and putting in their tithe and and they're impressing other people. But Jesus sees through the heart and he remarks upon this woman who is a widow who puts in two small coins into the offering that no one notices and no one would think was a big deal. But Jesus chooses to remark upon her gift and say she gave all that she had. She gave more than everyone else that we've seen today combined because she did it out of love. No one else noticed her, but Jesus did. Here's the thing. The things that are done in secret, Jesus notices. He sees what you do. He sees the integrity of your heart, and that can be an act of worship. It's a beautiful thing. So our passions are designed to build up the body. They're designed to make a difference. But oftentimes, in order for us to really examine them, we need to get a new perspective. So that's why he's talking about here in verses 17 through 19, where he says that we should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. And he's giving a contrast between futility, which means an emptiness of mind, and an intentionality that is living for Jesus. And the truth is, most of us need a change of perspective because even if we're trying to do the right things, there's a great chance that you're being limited by fear. And I'm going to try to illustrate that. Um, I don't have a prop today, but I do have a couple of illustrations that I hope will work. I want to try to help you to examine your life from God's perspective. And so we're going to take a perspective test. Would you put up the dots for me, please? There we go. All right. Very, very simple little test that I have for you here. Who can, by drawing four straight lines, connect all of the dots? 
Okay, Mark, Mark can. Hold on just a second. Get, work it, work it out, work it out. Okay, make sure, make sure you got it, if, you, if you've got it. I know you're trying, you've got it? You think you got it? Okay, wow, man, there's some folks here that is, you're smarter than me. All right, all four, so only four lines, only four, and they have to be straight, no cheating, no curves, no angles. All right, four straight lines. You think you got it? All right, Mark, do you want to tell us how to do it? Exactly. Now, if you didn't understand what, exactly what he said or couldn't hear him, we'll put it up and I'll show you the answer. There you go. And, and now how many of you are going, he cheated, right? Because what you're thinking is there's a box there. He went outside the box, right? That's what you're thinking because you didn't, you didn't get there because you're thinking, I have to end at the dot. Well, I didn't tell you you had to end at the dot. I didn't say there's a box. But our minds oftentimes project a box, we project upon ourselves limitations that aren't necessarily there. What about in your relationship with God? Are you putting him in a box in what he wants to do in and through your life? Or are you allowing him to define it? Is your fear limiting you from accomplishing what God wants to do? That's the whole point of it. Good job, sir. Thank you. And all the rest of you who got that as well. Good job. When you look at your life, how much is fear limiting you? And if, if you look at and even examine those fears, are they real or are they simply the confines of an imagined box where we forget that God is bigger than our circumstances? He's bigger than what others see. You see, how God sees you is what is important. I want you to think about some of the people in the, in the scripture and how God saw them compared to everyone else. God says that you are his child, that he has made you a joint heir with Jesus Christ, that your life matters in such a way that he wants to give you the riches of his kingdom to make you his own, an adopted son, an adopted daughter. But oftentimes that's not how we see ourselves and that's not how others see us. So when we think about some of the examples in the scripture, people saw Peter as a fisherman. He was a common, uneducated man. Jesus saw a fisher of men that God would use to accomplish amazing things with all of his faults, all of his anger issues, all of his impatience. God saw how it was going to be crafted and refined in order to make him into an apostle that would help to lead the early church. People saw Paul, excuse me, Saul, I can't say it, speak today, saw Saul as a persecutor of the church. God saw him being changed into Paul, the ambassador who would take God's message to the nations. People saw David as a shepherd of sheep and God saw David as a shepherd of his people. Here's how God sees us. In fact, here's what he says about David. He says, For the Lord sees not as a man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God sees your heart, not just where you are, but what you can become in him. So allow him to define your life, your value, 
and the pursuit of the purpose that he's called you to. To do that, we've got to have a change in our mindset. That's what this passage is talking about. It says, I testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as the ordinary people do in the futility or emptiness of their mind. And here's what he's saying in verse 18. He says, an empty mind, excuse me, an empty life is, has a self-oriented mind. They are darkened in their understanding. People outside of Jesus, they have no idea of how to have a purpose that lasts truly beyond themselves and certainly beyond their own lifetime. We can't see apart from Christ from an eternal perspective Their minds are darkened, but we're to break through that, to break through that box and say, God, how do you want to use me now and in the future? Here's what I mean by that. If you were to go back and look in the scripture at the story of Stephen, um, when Stephen is being martyred, he gives an incredible testimony of the gospel. He presents the scripture uh, of what God had done for his people Israel, and he presents who Jesus Christ is in a beautifully and powerful way. So powerful that it causes everyone um, of the religious people of his day to become so enraged that they want to stone him. But there in the corner, there's a little subnote that's mentioned that Saul who would have been a young man perhaps at that time, was standing on the side holding the coats of the people who picked up stones and killed Stephen. He's just a guy off on the side. Now, there's no way that Stephen could have imagined the impact that God was going to have through him on Saul, who would become Paul. He's just a guy off to the side. He probably didn't even see him. He saw instead the glory and beauty of Jesus. There are people in your life, maybe even in the fringes of your life, that God wants to influence them through you in ways you could never imagine. You see, when we begin to say, God, how do you want to use me today? How do you want to make a difference through my life in big ways or small ways? And we're seeking to say, Lord, just I just give myself to you as an offering. Use me in any way you want. He'll take even the people in the fringe on the outside of our life and he'll show him a glimpse of himself through you and make a difference. But we have to have a mind that's set on Christ and not set on self. The second part is that an empty life is characterized by a selfish heart. He says in verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because ignorance is within them. Due to the hardness of their heart, they've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When we look at the world around us, we can see how many people are pursuing, looking to fill the emptiness in their heart with drugs, with with substances, with um, pursuit of success, with sex, with all kinds of things that will never last and never fulfill. If we pursue that, we'll never accomplish God's purpose as well. Because sin robs us of love, of joy, of peace, acceptance. It it robs us of the very thing our heart cries out for that are found in Jesus Christ. 
Thirdly, an empty life pursues sensuality over substance. Sin can cause a person to seek sensuality because they can't fill the void within them. They're looking for love, but they're looking, just like the song says, in the wrong place, in a place that can never truly fulfill. And in the same way, it, it, it points us to pursue greed over goodness. God made us to produce good things. And, and if, we're, if we're living just like we used to live, we're never going to arrive at the purpose God calls us to. But then in verse 20, he shows us how to be intentional. And, and what I really like, what I want you to see here is what God, God is trying to communicate to us is that it's like a change of clothes. He's saying you've got to put off this garment because it's dirty and it's started to smell. It's like every Sunday I come with at least two changes of clothes because I always sweat during setup. I'm sorry. That's just how, what happens. I need to change clothes. Otherwise you would be sitting farther and farther back, okay? Um, but the same way, our old life needs to be put off like a garment, but the righteousness, the goodness of Christ is something we put on when we acknowledge his lordship over our life. And so you and I can be clothed with his likeness in just a moment when we simply turn our hearts and say, Lord, I, I'm putting off that which is of my flesh and instead, I'm putting on what you have done for me, your righteousness. Help me now to reflect who you are. That's what he's telling us to do. This, that's not the way you learned Christ. You have heard about him and were taught him that the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. When you get dressed in the morning and you're putting, putting on your clothes, just pray. And say, Lord, would you clothe me in your righteousness and in the likeness of Christ so that I may wear you today? Whatever outfit you pick out, let it be one that you, with that, you wear Jesus Christ so that that's what others see. Here's the reason that's so important. Is the greatest hindrance to people understanding and coming to knowledge of the gospel is hypocrisy. And all of us, because we are both sinners in that we have a sin nature and we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, we battle with hypocrisy. But only one is going to be seen, either the selfishness of Drew or of you or the righteousness of Jesus. And when, when we say, this is how we should live. This is what Jesus says. This is what God says. And we live in a way that doesn't reflect that. It causes a, a, a mental disconnect that is really, really difficult. And let me illustrate it with this really simple illustration. Would you put up um, the slide that has the colors? All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to say the color of the words out loud with me, okay? We're going to... Everybody... Understand, we're not saying the words. You're saying the color that the letters are written in for each one of those, okay? So first one is green. Now, now you guys, yeah, start going them faster. Green, red, blue, yellow, red. What? What happened? 
Wow, I mean, you made it to like five and you, everybody falls off. It's hard, isn't it? Because your mind's seeing two different things and you just don't know what to do with it. Here's the thing. When we don't look like Jesus, but we talk like Jesus, that's what happens to the people around us. They get so distracted that they can't see who Jesus really is. That's why he's telling us we got to put on a character. We need to make sure that what is shining through you and I is the fruits of the Spirit because that's what looks like Jesus. Judgment and condemnation does not look like Jesus. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, those look like Jesus. That's what the world has to see in order for our lives to truly make a difference, to truly be intentional. Our minds have to be set to say, Lord, help me to think like you. Our hearts need to beat like Jesus. And we need to pray and say, Lord, would you make my heart ache for the things your heart aches for? Change me inside. An intentional life, it puts away the things that are empty, that are selfish, and focuses on the needs of others. And an intentional life puts on the righteousness of Jesus. When we do that, others will see Jesus in us and through us, And we'll have the freedom to pursue what God has created us to do. So here's here's how I want to bring it all, all together. Would you begin to just ask the Lord to help you reflect his likeness? To make sure that the things that you say and the things that you do aren't a disconnect like those colors. And that with that, ask the Lord to to shape your desires and to show you if he's placed within you a holy discontent. Because I believe what the way that so many new things, new ministries happen within the church is that they're born out of a stirring inside of us where our heart begins to beat like Jesus. Ask him to show you the things that break his heart that will then resonate with you. And then begin to pursue that and say, Lord, how can I make a difference in this world? And if we can walk alongside of you, we want to do that because we're in this together. You're not on your own. God has brought us together as the body of Christ to build up one another in love so that his kingdom is expanded and so that others see Jesus Christ. Read through these verses. Look and see the things that we need to put off and the things that we need to put on. And the next week, we're going to look at the most important part where he's talking about the Holy Spirit and how he works in our life and how not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Would you be willing to ask the Lord to do that kind of work in you? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your patience with me, your patience with us. Lord, let us not be a disconnect to others. Let what they see in us be an accurate reflection of you and of the work that you've done in us. Well, we want to rightly reflect your character. Well, we want to show others the fruits of the Spirit. 
Lord, I'm just reminded now, even as I'm praying, of, of the testimony of, of Bahar when she shared at our summer supper of, um, a couple weeks ago about how she saw the gospel long before she ever heard it. She saw it in the love of your people, reaching out to her when she wanted nothing to do with religion. She saw Jesus. Lord, would you do that in us as your church? Would you give us such a passion to look like you that others will see Jesus in us and that their lives will be changed? And then, Lord, show us the things that break your heart and break our hearts for them as well so that we may be your hands and your feet. In Jesus' name we pray.